0: Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve and I am the lead pastor. Uh, happy Mother's Day to you. Kind of a big day. Um, mothering is uh, one of the biggest challenges in life, if not the biggest. Um, you don't know what challenge is until you've gone to the grocery store with a toddler. right? You're looking at the shelf. Two seconds, literally two seconds. You look down and... Uh, Your child's two aisles over in the frozen food section, eating a frozen dinner, (laughs) off the floor, naked, (laughs) mothering, right? I mean, it is seriously uh, the biggest challenge in life. Um, So we come to Mother's Day, and I always come with a, a, a certain amount of caution in my heart. It's a complex day. Mother's Day is an emotionally loaded day, and and so I want to read a liturgy this morning that I've read in years past. Uh, I adapted it from a blogger named Amy Young, and um, uh, I think it just helps us uh, enter into a little bit of the complexity and the joy of today. To those who gave birth this year, to their first or next child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of the food stains to prove it, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who are walking the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointment. We walk with you, though often imperfectly. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, or in years past, we mourn with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience and we honor your sorrow. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way that you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, foster-parent, or adopt, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who have emptier nests in the upcoming year, We rejoice with you, and we also grieve with you. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. To those who have had an abortion, we share grace with you. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expecting and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day... We want to be a community that walks with you and honors you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors among us. So we honor you today. So happy Mother's Day. You guys are going to keep going in James this morning, so let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. Let's open up to James chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. If you're using one of our Bibles, we are going over to page 1012, 1012. We're going to be talking about wisdom this morning. Wisdom is a a word that we're used to using. It's It's not foreign to us. The concept is a little bit foreign. Like when I think about a wise man or a wise person, a wise, I don't know why I always think of a wise man, but I always picture him in a tunic sitting on a mountain somewhere. When I think of a wise woman, I think of my grandmother sitting behind a computer. I don't know why. But um, when you think of, of wisdom, um, you just have these images often of older people that have, and here's the thing. We may not think of wisdom a lot in our daily life. We may not think about how wisdom intersects with our life, but we interact with wisdom every day. We rely on wisdom every single day because wisdom is what helps you determine where you want to go and how you want to get there. You're going to hear me say that a lot this morning. Wisdom is what helps us determine where we want to go, right? And I'm, I'm speaking a little bit metaphorically, I'm not just talking about lunch today, although. Be wise there too. Um, but, but where you want to go and then how you're going to get there. What steps are you going to take to get there, right? So that's why it's incredibly critical that we have real wisdom. Because if we don't, all of our plans are, are undercut from the outset. So here's the thing, you guys true wisdom is not about having the right information, true wisdom is about having the right posture of heart. And that's where we're going to be going this morning. So I'm going to read James chapter 3 out loud. I want you to follow along. James chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder and every vile practice but the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable gentle open to reason full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, guys. Um, our passage today spends an amount of time discussing wisdom and then, and then moves very, very quickly into talking about how wisdom plays out in, in the area of conflict. This morning, we're going to be focusing really just on the first part. We're going to be talking about the different kinds of wisdom, what real wisdom is and what fake wisdom is. Uh, and then next week, I'm going to invite you back because we're going to be talking about how that plays out specifically in the areas of conflict. Which, so today's kind of the, the lesson, next week is the lab, right? We're going to be talking about how the rubber meets the road because it plays out in every area of life, right? There's healthy conflict and there's unhealthy conflict. One thing there is not is a lack of conflict. There's plenty of conflict in life, and, and there is good conflict. The problem is you've got to be working from a place of wisdom to move into a place of good conflict. So we'll get into that next week. I invite you back for, for that. James, this morning starts with a, a provocative question. Who is wise among you? And if I were to ask you, I think most of us would be sitting here a little reluctant to raise our hand, kind of like, I wonder, wonder who around here is audacious enough to think that they're, they're wise, right? Who's, who's going to raise their hand on that one? All right, well, here's, here's the implication of James's question. Everybody thinks they're wise. James is starting with the assumption that, that you think you're wise. And you're like, oh, Steve, come on, man. I know I'm not wise. Really? Really? All right, so think about what wisdom is. Wisdom is, is, is what we use to decide where we're going and how we're going to get there, right? Which means it affects every decision of every day. It affects the big decisions of life and the little decisions of life. It affects what we say in a moment-to-moment basis, the, the course of action we take with our career, our education, the choices we make about where we're going to live and all of these things. And how often do you stop and say, man, right now life is above my pay grade. I need some help. I need to seek outside wisdom. You do it. Sometimes, right? When, when, when occasionally that big thing comes and you realize, I don't have the wisdom to navigate these waters. I better get some help. Think about the, the thousands of times you rely on your own wisdom instead of leaning into the wisdom of others. Instead of admitting you don't have the wisdom to navigate what's in front of you, you assume you do. See, when James is assuming. That your answer here is, yeah, I'm that wise one. He's right. You do assume you're, you're that wise one. You think you have what you need to navigate the, the challenges of life in front of you. Uh, that's how you're moving through life and making the decisions you're making and, and, and um, fairly confident with, with what you're doing, right? Um, most of the time, the bottom line is you, you trust yourself, right? And, and you trust people who think like you. Who come from the same line of thinking, they have the same preferences and opinions and, and leanings that you have because what you hear in their advice echoes what you already think to be true, right? And so we have this, this confirmation bias, right? We, we, we expect to hear what we already expect to be true and so we gravitate toward those people and allow them to have influence over us because it's where we want to go anyway, right? So when James says, who, who thinks they're, among you thinks they're wise, it's us, man, it's all of us. So when we think about wisdom, this is what I want you to think about. Wisdom is like wisdom is like Google. Okay, we all know what Google is, right? Incredible search engine. I go to Google and I type in Mexican food, right? And and right off the bat, I am given ten Mexican food restaurants within driving distance of my house. I'm giving the ratings of, of of what people think of them. I'm given driving directions from from where I am, right? Relevant, personal, helpful. Right, right after that, I'm, I'm given a, a list of, of like top tens, top ten best Mexican food res- recipes that aren't tacos. I don't know why they exclude tacos. I think tacos are awesome, but, but they're just focusing on non-tacos. Okay? okay, I get it. And then you find interesting factoids, things I didn't even know I needed to know. Right? Like, like I discovered that, that just this year, Taco Bell surpassed Chipotle as America's favorite Mexican food restaurant. Taco Bell is America's favorite Mexican food restaurant. That's an oxymoron. That, <laughs> that, but that, that, so I didn't even know that I needed to know, but Google knew that I needed to know and it told me, right? So how does it do this, right? What, what is this dark magic working in this computer that somehow, so here's the thing, I type in Mexican food and it goes out onto the internet where there are literally billions of points of information dealing with Mexican food, right? Billions. And yet it sorts through in three nanoseconds billions of pieces of information and comes up with, bam, here's exactly what, and I'm like, yes, that is exactly what I need to know. How does it do that? There's this thing just under the surface of Google that you don't see, but but actually is the lifeblood. It's called Algorithms. Algorithms are complex mathematical formulas that take into account multiple variables and determine a proper solution. And so they run these algorithms. And and the variables they're dealing with are things like, like what are my previous search histories? Where do I live? What have other people who searched this wanted to find? And and they use all these different variables to to look through a billion pieces of information to find the three that are most relevant to me, right? And, And so This algorithm is what makes it run. It is a complex series of filters through which information passes. You guys, that's a lot like wisdom. Wisdom is the algorithm through which we process life. So what you do is you go to the search bar in your head and you type in happiness. And then it comes up with a destination and a way to get there. Right? That's wisdom. Wisdom is what we're, when I'm pursuing security, when I'm pursuing significance, when I'm pursuing pleasure, I go to the search bar in my head and I type in whatever it is. And wisdom is the algorithm that runs, that helps me process all of life to determine where I want to go and how I want to get there. So I type in happiness and my algorithm comes back with something. It's going to be different for each person. Because your algorithm is unique to you. But maybe it comes back and says, hey, you need this relationship to be happy. So I start pursuing that relationship because that's the destination. That's what's going to give me my happiness. And so wisdom also helps me set up the navigational path to get there. Right? How do I move into this relationship? How do I win this person over? How do I get their affection? Right? So I put a pin on the map and then Google Maps helps me figure out how to, how to get there. Right? And sometimes I get there. Sometimes I don't, right? Sometimes it's like, you know, I typed in a restaurant on Google, and uh, literally two weeks ago, it stuck me into a cul-de-sac in the middle of a neighborhood, right? Thanks, Google. Like, there's no restaurant here. It actually happened to be on the other side of the cul-de-sac, and somehow Google got confused. I, three nanoseconds, I don't know how it even got me that close, right? But I'm frustrated, like, Come on, you should have got me right to the front door. Sometimes life's like that. You type in happiness. It tells you you need a relationship. So you pursue relationships, and it doesn't happen. So you go back to the search bar. You type in happiness again because relationship isn't happening, right? So you move with the disappointment back to the search. Sometimes you get the relationship, and it doesn't give you what you thought it was going to give you, right? You arrive at the destination. It's not what you thought it was going to be. The ratings were all wrong. Yelp, missed it on this one, right? This relationship is not making me eternally satisfied and happy, right? And so what do you do with that disappointment? You go back to the search engine. You type in happiness again. That didn't work, so I'm going to go back and do it over again, right? And what I think is that over a period of time, as I gain more information, as I gain more experience, as I work with more time, somehow my algorithm is going to get better. And so even though it keeps disappointing me, even though it keeps taking me either to the wrong place or taking me to a place that doesn't give me what I hoped it would give me, I keep going back to it and typing in the same stuff, hoping it's going to get me there. James, this morning, is lifting the hood to show us the algorithms that drive our wisdom. He's lifting the hood and showing us what's actually driving our choices. Not just what we want, but why we want it. That's more important. Because if you figure out why you want it, you're going to figure out whether the what is worth pursuing. right? So James pulls it back and he says, man, this is what it is. And, and there are two kinds of wisdom here. There's a worldly wisdom that always fails. And there's a godly wisdom that can't help but succeed. And you need to know the difference. So, we're going to take a look this morning at worldly wisdom. In verses 14 through 16, James describes worldly wisdom in in great detail. In fact, he gives us three important points. In verse 14, he tells us that that worldly wisdom is fundamentally rooted in selfishness, right? In verse 13, it says, or excuse me, verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. So, So, you think you're wise, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, (laughs) <laughs> you're a liar about your wisdom. You're, you're deceiving yourself and you are deceiving others. See, worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom, false wisdom, bad wisdom, isn't primarily bad because it has bad information. Bad wisdom isn't wrong because it's got a, a false set of facts. Primarily, worldly wisdom is false and broken because it is driven by false motives it is driven by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition those are the engines that make it go those are the filters through which we we process everything to try to get to our end result right so bitter jealousy jealousy itself is a word that that isn't necessarily bad right This word could be translated as zeal, which is a good thing. To be zealous for good things is, is a good thing. It means to have a strong desire, and there's nothing wrong with having strong desires. In fact, we were created to have strong desires. God's the one that gave us our desires, and he intended us to have strong desires. In this context, though, we know this is bad because he put the word bitter in front of it. This is a bitter jealousy. This is a strong desire that is flowing out of resentment. This is a strong desire that is flowing out of the fact that I compare myself to others and I'm frustrated with what I see. I perceive them as having more than I have or being more than I am. And I become jealous of their possessions or their station in life or the way people treat them or the respect they have or the prestige they've earned or haven't earned in my bitter jealousy. And I, be, I you know, so I, I, I want it, right? Selfish ambition. Ambition, there's nothing wrong with ambition. God gave us a wiring to be successful. He gave us a desire to be significant. There's nothing wrong with ambition. To be significant, to build something significant, to invest in something significant, there's nothing wrong with ambition. The problem here is that it's selfish ambition. It is is a desire to promote and build self. Not us, me. Me not you, me. Life is a competition. And so what it comes down to is this, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition flow from this mindset that says, I have to keep what I have, and I have to get more. This is the worldly mindset. This is how I become significant. This is how I become loved. This is how I become secure. I keep what I have, and I get more. Life is a field of limited resources, and it's a competition, and because there are limited resources, everything you get is something I can't have, and everything I get is something you can't take from me. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition—it's about me. So I look at people as a means to an end. I look at my things as a way to secure myself or to to um, enjoy myself or or whatever. The reality, though, is most of us don't like to think of ourselves as being bitterly jealous or selfishly ambitious. (laughs) Those aren't quality traits we like to see in ourselves, right? We don't like to look in our heart and say, oh, I'm really jealous of that person right now. That's why I insulted them. I think they get too much attention, and they're actually kind of pretty no, no, we're, we're not going to say that because that would admit somehow we feel like they're superior to us. And the reason we're bitterly jealous is that we desperately want to be superior to them. So we're not going to admit we're bitterly jealous. We're going to come up with all kinds of passive aggressive ways to, to deal with that in a way that doesn't admit the truth to ourselves or to others. Thomas Chalmers said, What the heart wants, the will chooses and the mind justifies. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. When we are driven by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, we're going to hide those motivations from ourselves. They're still going to drive us. I want that better job. I want that better house. I want that better car. I want that better relationship. I want to be seen as better than. I want them reduced and myself raised. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, but I'm not going to reveal those motivations to myself. In fact, James himself says that this is deceptive. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast being false to others and lie about the truth to yourself, right? Don't, don't deceive yourself. So how am I supposed to know if I am driven... By, by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, if it's deceptive, and I even hide it for myself, how am I supposed to see it? Well, let me ask you something, because those roots always produce the same fruit. How much discontent drives you? How much of your life is driven by discontent? I don't have enough. I'm not enough. job, money, possessions, respect, affirmation, approval, discontent. Discontent flows from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. How much of your life is driven by fear? I'm afraid I'm going to lose what I have. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my standing. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my respect. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my position. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my income. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my security. I'm afraid I'm going to lose the approval and the affection of people I desperately need. I'm I'm driven by fear. Fear flows from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. How much of your life is driven by pride? Your need to promote an image, on the one hand being strong and on the other hand looking stronger than. Those that you consider weak. Those that you just just consider despicable or worth despising. You look for those things, you, you know where the root is. You may not want to admit it. You may not want to deal with it. But those things flow from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So the measure to which your life is driven by discontent, fear, and pride is the measure to which you are rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And if you're like me, you're not feeling real good about yourself right now. A lot of my life is driven by discontent. A lot of my life is driven by fear. A lot of my life is driven by pride. But those are the things that naturally flow out of it. It's rooted in selfishness, self-centeredness, right? And as a result, um, it, it expresses itself in a life that is determined to, to do life without God. In, in, I want to get the blessings of God without the presence of God. I want to get the fullness of what God gives without humble dependence on the God who gives it, right? So in verse 15, what we see is that, is that this flows out of a specific uh, mindset, right? Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, this wisdom, this so-called wisdom, is, 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 is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Let's deal with each one of those. Earthly. The word here literally means of the earth, right? Of the earth. It, it, it means it's in comparison to the wisdom that comes down from above. This wisdom is right here on the terrestrial plane. So it, the wisdom that comes down from above generally has a better perspective on things, doesn't it? If you're up here, can't you see a lot? Like, especially if you're up here where God is, (laughs) because he's like as high as you can get and still has perfect vision of all things, right? So, so the wisdom that comes down from above sees all things. The wisdom that is earthly, I mean, how much can you see at any given time of your world, of your life? Like, like, you know, you only see a very, very small piece of what is and, what is, and, and, and even of what is relevant to your daily life, right? But this wisdom is earthly. It depends on what I see, not what God sees. It depends on what I determine, not what God determines. It, it depends on my ability to see what is right, what is good, what will give life, what will bring blessing, not on God. I don't depend on God. I compete with God. It is earthly. The second word is unspiritual. Unspiritual. The Greek word, sukakos literally means of the soul. Well, what's wrong with the soul? There's nothing wrong with the soul, but this word is often used in the New Testament to contrast someone who is spiritual to someone who is depending on their natural abilities and talents. So I believe that we are body, soul, and spirit, that God designed us as tripartite beings. Um, some people would say we're just body and soul. That's fine. I'm not going to argue with you, but I, I think we're actually tripartite. I think uh, what that means is physically we're a body. Our soul is that part of us that's our personality. It's who we think of when we think of ourselves, like, like who Steve is, right? The experiences I've had, the things that I enjoy, the that I've, hobbies I've pursued, the, the, the dumb things I've done, all the things that have shaped who I am. That's my soul. That's my sense of self. My spirit is that part that communes with God. And that part of me is born dead, separated from God. I am born spiritually dead. and when I become a believer in Christ. I am regenerate. I am made alive. The spirit, once again, is connected with God. It's the part of me that connects with and, and, and uh, uh, communes with, with God. Right? So when I become a believer, that part comes back alive. To be someone who is driven by the soul then is somebody who is completely driven by their own personality and perspective. It is somebody who's living out of the wisdom of their own experience, their own personality, their own value set, their own judgments, right? To be soulish or to be unspiritual here then means my wisdom depends on what I think is best. Not only is it visited based on my limited view of reality, it's based on my limited experience and value system. The third word tells us exactly where this aligns us. The third word is demonic. This wisdom is demonic. When we are operating according to this wisdom, we are exactly where our enemy wants us to be. We are in the flow of rebellion against God. We are in the flow of those who are competing with God instead of depending on God. We are in the flow of those who are seeking to establish our own glory instead of live for God's glory, establish our own good instead of live out of God's goodness. Living in, as a way that, that says, I deserve what I get, not what I I, gr- I humbly receive what you give. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And as a result, it is unenlightened by the wisdom from above, and it's limited, perpetually limited by my experience, my vision, my thoughts. So when that becomes your algorithm, when, when that becomes what, what you're, you're driven by, by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and then you run your choices through this algorithm that is limited in perspective, driven by your personal value system, and is in rebellion against God, we shouldn't be surprised that it ends up to, uh, with us setting wrong goals. We choose wrong destinations. We want happiness, which is a good goal, but we set the wrong waypoint to get there. We think, if I can get here, it's going to give me happiness. We get there, and it doesn't give me what I thought it would. And we shouldn't be surprised because our algorithm is fatally flawed. There's a problem in the coding, and as a result, the results will always fail. Verse 16. Verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, when your wisdom is driven by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, There will be disorder in every vile practice. The end result of this path, the end result, is is, um, uh, a brokenness within and a brokenness without. It leads to disorder and every vile practice. All right, so that vision you had of yourself living the high life, whatever it is, if I could just get, and you finish the sentence, if I could just get more money, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just win the lottery, if I could just get that person to stop bugging me, if I could just get that person to start loving me, if I could just, if I could, whatever it is that that defines your, if I could just, right, keep what I have and get more, it's not going to give you what you think it'll give you. It is not going to usher you in to the fullness of God's presence. It's not going to usher you in to the fullness of God's blessing. It's going to result in disorder and vile practices. It's going to result in brokenness without and corruption within. You will end up destroying the very things you claim you love, and you'll end up becoming the very person you claim you hate. It will corrupt what is around you, and it will bring out the corruption that is within you. These seeds only bring forth a specific kind of fruit. When we plant seeds of false wisdom, we will reap a harvest of disorder and vile corruption. We will ruin our lives, and we will end up hurting people around us. When we try to get God's blessing without humble dependence on God, we will never achieve what we are hoping to gain. You're not going to end up liking what you get or who you become. In contrast to this, James lays out true wisdom, genuine wisdom. True wisdom, James says, has nothing to do with having all the right answers, with knowing all the right things. True wisdom isn't being able to say clever things in pithy statements, having the the perfect comment or comeback. The wise person, according to James, is the person who's been humbled by grace. Take a look back up at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? You'll know it by his good conduct. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Genuine wisdom is rooted in a humble responsiveness to grace. All right, let's be honest for a minute. When when we want someone wise those few moments where we realize, okay, life is above my pay grade. I can't rely on my own wisdom. I need outside help. In those moments, generally the top of the list of the people we're looking for is not meekness. What we're generally looking for is success. Who has gone ahead of me and done this better than me? Who is higher on the mountain where I want to go and I think can help me get to where they are? Who is going to help me become a better me and achieve what I want to achieve so we look for people that are that are strong that are successful that are that are that are uh, they communicate well they they we're looking for people to fix our problems whether it's in our home or in our business or in our nation generally we're not like who's the meekest person we can pick right No, we're asking who's the most successful person we can pick because they're the ones that'll be able to get us to get us to where we want to be You guys, that's absolutely foolish. It is absolutely foolish. James tells us that the foundation of wisdom, the foundation of wisdom is meekness. So if you're not building on weakness, it's not wise. It will end up producing disorder and every form of vile wickedness. That will be the end result. Foundation is the only, or the the humility is the only soil that will grow genuine wisdom. And so if someone does not demonstrate weakness, they are not worth you modeling your life after them and you trusting them with your life decisions. I don't care whether we're talking about a politician or a religious leader. If that person does not demonstrate meekness in their life, I'm not saying you can't get good advice from them. You can learn things from proud people. But do not give them influence over your heart. Do not model your life after their course of action, do not trust them to produce when only wisdom can produce because they will betray you. Their image of success is an image. If it is not based in humility, it is growing in disorder and every vile corruption. So we want to pursue weakness, we want to follow people who, who model meekness. What is meekness? that's another word that we we hear a lot but we don't use a lot right it's generally not a compliment because we barely even use it well that guy's just really meek well what does that mean is that an underhanded insult compliment i mean what what is that right so meekness is is gentleness that grows out of humility that's what meekness is it's a gentleness that grows out of humility I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to defend myself. I'm not going to become abrasive with others because my pride is I am gentle because I am humble. So one way to think about this is is strength that is properly exercised in the proper contexts, in the proper way. It is somebody who exercises their strength in the proper context, at the proper time, in the proper way. Meekness is strength. All right, I'm going to share with you a dream I had, um, which the dream is weird, I'm going to warn you. Um, I, I had it this week as I was studying, uh, and I don't generally like to share dreams because they are just weird, um, but I really felt like this was like it, I think it just, uh, it challenged me and it left me unsettled in good ways. So I share it with you this morning with the hope that it'll possibly do the same. So in this dream, I dreamt that I was confronted with a very large guy, big muscular tree trunk kind of a guy, the kind of guy that, that. Snap me in two right and 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 he's a big guy and he's got a malicious grin and and I can tell he's demonic like in my dream I could just tell that he was evil intentioned that he wanted to destroy something good and in this dream um, I'm so this is where I'm Jesus <laughs> but I'm not Jesus if that makes any sense right so in this dream I'm like hey I'm Jesus but I'm not I'm me Like, so I'm kind of with Jesus, but I'm, so I'm kind of standing in the place of Jesus. I'm supposed to do what Jesus does, but I'm not Jesus, sort of a deal. And behind me is a tree, okay, a big living tree, okay? I'm not a big tree guy, I don't, but it's a big tree, and it's my tree, and I love this tree. I don't know why, but that's, that's the reality. And, And so this guy, like in my dream, looks at my tree and says, oh, I see you also have a tree. And what he means by that is he's going to take it. Right? I can just tell by what's going on is he's saying he wants this tree, and if he takes his, this tree, I know it also means he's going to take my life. Like, it's all kind of wrapped up together, this weird thing. Like, I've got this tree, and he wants it, and he's maliciously, and I'm thinking I'm, you know, and I look over, and suddenly there's a woman in my dream, and I don't know who she is. never seen her before, and she, uh, like, maybe she's just lady wisdom. I don't know, but, but she's just like, let him have it. And she's kind of smiling. It's not going to last anyway. It's going to die. You're going to die. Let him have it. It's not permanent. What's permanent is is with God in Christ. What's permanent is the blessing you're going to receive in Christ. Like, all of those things are communicated in this one little statement, let him have it. Like, let him have the tree. Let him have your life. And immediately, he's coming toward me, right? And so in my dream, I grab his hands, and it's like holding a small child's hands. Like, I have so much power. Like, he's helpless, He can't, like, I can just grab him and hold him, and so the next thing I do is grab him, and I'm holding him upside down, which basically means he's powerless, right? I'm like dipping his head in the mud, right? So, and then I wake up, and you're like, dude, that is the weirdest dream ever. Why are you even sharing this? Because as soon as I woke up, this is what, this is what hit me, I didn't have enough strength to not use my strength. I didn't have enough strength to let him take my tree and to let him take my life. I knew in that moment when I was holding him there, I was deeply conflicted. I know I'm supposed to let him do this. But I don't think I'm strong enough to do that. I don't think I'm strong enough to fail. I don't think I'm strong enough to let him destroy this thing that I treasure and I value, even though God told me I'm supposed to. So what that revealed to me as I was wrestling with this is that meekness is freaking hard. I, I'm not strong enough to be meek. If I have the strength to defend what I build, if I have the strength to define, defend myself, if I have the strength to build something and protect it, and then I choose not to do it, I don't know that I'm strong enough to do that. And then I thought about Christ. Isn't that exactly what he did? When he was brought before the council of Jewish elders, when he was was spit on and hit, when he was brought before Pilate, he had enough power to grab Pilate by the ankles. He had enough power to grab the entire Roman army by the ankles and hold them powerless. But he withheld his power and yielded himself because it was the path of wisdom. It was the path that God had placed him on to secure blessing for for, for us. He yielded himself. He was meek, which means he was strong enough not to exercise his power. And I can't do that. I'm not strong enough to resist the bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in my heart. I am driven by a need to build my own glory, to secure my own future, to establish my own worth. And I, am, I, I, I don't have the strength to just give that up and walk away from it, to pick up my cross and follow Christ daily. I don't have the strength to do that because I don't have the strength to resist the bitter impulses of my own heart to build and protect for my own glory and security and joy, to stand back, and let it be destroyed, even if by the will of God. So then I wrestled with that, and I started asking, what does that mean? How in the world are we supposed to be meek when it's an impossible task? And there's only one answer. You have to follow the Savior of meekness. You have to follow your hero in the faith, because he has perfectly modeled meekness, and he loves you. When you are unconditionally, ridiculously loved by the God who can retell your story as a story of resurrection, not of death, of success instead of failure, that gives you the strength and the courage to be meek, to actually allow yourself to fail in things the world says are are non-negotiable in order to succeed in the things that God says are worth all things. Meekness flows from responding to, to God's love. Meekness flows from, from my drawing near to the God who has demonstrated meekness on my behalf when he stepped into my shame so I could be covered with his dignity, into my guilt so I could be covered with his record. When I am loved like that, I become strong like him. When I am loved like that, I become meek not because I'm strong enough, but because His love frees me and changes me so that I can lose to the glory of God. I can yield to the glory of God. I can pick up my cross and die to my own kingdom, to my own glory, to my own plans, to my own, to my own self. To the glory of God. I need to humbly respond to, to grace because it's only in responding to grace that I am made courageous in meekness. And what this does is it is effective and transformative. Take a look at what it does in verse 17. In verse 17. This wisdom that is from above, man, it is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This isn't my work for God. I don't choose to be meek. Meekness flows from a response to the grace of God. And as I respond to God's grace, as I respond to God's love, it changes who I am and it changes how I operate with people around me. Because I am now responding to the love of God, and being filled by the love of God, no longer competing with God for the glory of God, I can now humble myself in the presence of God, which means I will also humble myself in the presence of people. I no longer have to compete with you. Life is not a field of limited resources. I have the super abundant grace of God that gives and gives and gives and never stops giving. I follow the Christ of the resurrection. Not even death can take away the greatest blessings that God has given me because the greatest blessings come not in achieving in this world, but by being raised into the next. You're no longer a threat to me. And that means I can now love you instead of use you. It means I can now relate to you instead of compete with you. It means that I can now see you in humility instead of fight with you out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This list, man, when you look at this list, they're all things that... It, it, they talk about your own character changing but also the way it changes the way you relate to others and community around you this grace comes in and transforms you and then that grace works through you and transforms the way you relate to others right so it begins with this this statement it is first pure unlike the 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 disorder and vile wickedness that grows out of the conceited soil. This fruit is pure. It is good to eat. Good for you and, and good for, for others. It is peaceable. In the face of conflict, instead of being quick to go to war, instead of being quick to defend yourself, instead of trying to be quick to defeat your enemy, you are, you are first to move toward peace. You want to be a peacemaker, not a war maker. You don't want to win arguments because you don't want to lose the war for the sake of winning a battle. And the greater war has much more to do with the advancement of grace than it does with the advancement of my cause and my personal preferences. I am a peacemaker, I am gentle. It allows me to work with people using the appropriate amount of strength. I am gentle when someone approaches me and they are hurt. When someone approaches me and they are offensive, when someone approaches me, I can use I, I can be gentle with them instead of abrasive, instead of shutting them down, instead of them being a, a, a nuisance or, a, or a, 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 a distraction. I can be gentle with their hurt even if they're not being gentle in the way they express it. Right? I am open to reason, which means that, that I, I listen. If, if others are approaching me with ways I can change to grow, I am eager to hear that. I'm not defensive. I'm not going to rebut your arguments. I'm not going to silence you. I, I'm gonna be, I am going to be open to reason when I'm wrong or or when others even just perceive me to be wrong, right? I'm going to be full of mercy and good fruits. When I'm dealing with people that are difficult to deal with, I'm going to see in them the glory even though all I'm experiencing is the ruin, right? All I'm experiencing is the negative stuff, but I still see within them the glory of the image of God and allows me to work with them in mercy, recognizing that hurt people hurt people, And so even though they are moving toward me in a way that might hurt me, I recognize that there is a hurt that drives their abuse. It allows me to move toward them in mercy and good fruit instead of anger. It allows me to be impartial because now I don't value people based on what they can do for me and how they can advance my cause. I actually value them because they are people created in the image of God. It allows me to be impartial. It allows me to be sincere Because I don't have to put on false motivations to get you to do what I want you to do, to manipulate you, to get you to to be who I want you to be or do what I want you to do. It allows me to be sincere, honest, a genuine integrity between my motivation and my expression. Instead of twisting it along the way, a selfish ambition that ends up being expressed as an act of generosity, as a way to manipulate others to do what I want them to do or become what I want them to become. You guys, it transforms us. It changes who we are, and because it changes who we are, it changes the way we operate with others. And verse 18 tells us it takes us where we actually want to go. In verse 18, it says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, It's a tricky verse to translate, but, but the heart of it is this. The person who is growing in genuine wisdom experiences peace and becomes a source of peace to others. They sow a a field of harvest from which others benefit. Somebody who is going deep in this wisdom, growing in this wisdom, experiences peace and becomes a source of blessing and peace to others. And you're like, Steve, I don't, that sounds great, but I'm not really that interested in peace. I want to (laughs) win. Right? I want to win. How is this wisdom going to help me win? How is this wisdom going to help me get ahead? How is this wisdom going to help me in this life? You're totally misunderstanding peace. When we talk about peace biblically, we're never talking about just the lack of conflict. We're never just talking about being nice. When we're talking about peace, we're talking about the deep and profound concept of the shalom of God, the peace of God. When we talk about the peace of God, we're talking about the fullness and the flourishing of life. Shalom is the way life was meant to be. Shalom is what you crave. It's why you want to win. It's why you want to be secure. It's why you want to be liked or loved. It is why you want to be respected. It is why you want a bigger house or a bigger car. Those paths will not get you there. False witness will never get you to that destination. That path will always lead you to to disorder and, and, and vile wickedness. Corruption within and corruption without. This path actually takes you to the proper destination. The peace of God. You were created for shalom. It is God's greatest gift to you. And and God's greatest gift to you has been cut off from you because you were born, broken in your spirit, separated from the life of God. Grace invites us back to re-experience the shalom of God, to move back into the very flourishing and fullness of the life of God manifest in our lives. And it doesn't come from us building our kingdom, it comes from us living for His kingdom. It doesn't come from us with competing with God for His plan, but from us submitting and yielding to, to God's plan. It, it comes from a humble dependence on God, not an independent competition with God. Genuine wisdom plants seeds in a soil of humility and the tree that comes out produces fruit and that fruit leaves you content and joyful and strong and dignified. Not because you've accomplished it, not because you have enough money, not because you have a bigger house, but because the God of the universe loves you and is for you and is pouring out his blessing on you. That's wisdom. That's the algorithm I want running my life. But the default algorithm of my soul is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. The only way I will be able to become a person who is wise is by responding to grace. A heart that is continually humbled and set free by the fact that an infinitely beautiful God loves me infinitely. When I am humbled by that and broken by that grace, I am set free into that humility. And that humility will bear its good fruit. Now, come back next week, and we're going to talk about specifically how this plays out in the areas of conflict. Nothing brings out our bad wisdom. More than bad conflict. So next week we're going to talk specifically about how this plays out in ways that can be transformative to how we can move into good conflict and healthy growth. All right, let me pray for us. We'll go into our time of response and share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. And I thank you that you are the model of all the things that we're discussing, that you are wise. And not just because you know what to do, not because you have so much knowledge, but because you are the embodiment of humility. Man, what a, what a profound, crazy thing that that is, that the God of glory is also for us the model of humility. A God who doesn't put his own needs first, but puts our needs above his own. A God who humbled himself in the face of our offense. A God who didn't put us off because of our brokenness, but instead drew near to us that we might be brought near to Him, that we might be redeemed and restored. Father, I pray for my friends this morning, if there is anyone here this morning that, that has not responded to the grace of God with genuine faith, this response of the heart of trust, that he, Spirit, you will awaken it within them this morning, that they will want to draw near to the God who has drawn near to them, that they will want to yield to that kind of love to be remade and renewed. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. That we would continue to push into this grace that we might be set freed into this wisdom. Lord, we are so easily distracted. We are so easily, man, just shiny things all around us. And we want that shiny thing, and we want that approval, and we want, we want that respect, and we want that. Man, Lord, will you just clear the smoke away and give us a genuinely clear vision of what is worthwhile. And will you give us the courage to be meek, to not defend ourselves, to not to build our own kingdoms, to not to establish our own walls, to not dig our own trenches, but to trust that at the end of the day, our hope is in your power to raise the dead, not in our ability to fend it off. Give us that kind of boldness. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll start communion in a moment.